There's a certain irony in the balance of essential substances in life. Things that you absolutely need, but too much of them can be harmful for you. I think of things like water. Absolutely essential, but too much of it can be harmful and even fatal for you. You can be intoxicated on water. You would have never convinced me of that until a number of years ago when I was in the military and we were you know, on a field exercise and it was during the summer, uh, pretty hot, and they were impressing upon us the need to drink water and to drink a lot of water. And they said, you can't drink too much water. Well, you can. One fellow that I worked with actually went to the hospital because he had too much water. And so you have, you have to have it. But in amounts that are too much, it can be harmful to you. Things like salt. You need salt. But too much of it can be harmful. Oxygen, even, if you can imagine, too much of it can be harmful for you, or at least in concentrations that are too strong. And even medication. There are some medications that people take that if they didn't have those medications, they would die, and yet too much of that medication could do just exactly that. So physically, there are things that we need that too much of, and in the wrong balance or proportion can be harmful or fatal to us. The irony extends to things like virtues. You know, there are certain virtues that can be harmful to us. I think of things like ambition. We need ambition. We need drive, a desire to be successful. But too much ambition can be harmful. And I'm reminded of 1 Kings chapter 12 and a man named Rehoboam who came to the power of being a king and had an unequal balance in the advice that he was receiving. He wasn't listening to the sound older wise advice. He listened to the advice of his contemporaries, but his ambition to succeed actually led to failure. <clears throat> and so in virtues, we have to have a balance to make sure that we have the virtue, but too much of it can be harmful to us. I want to focus on one in particular tonight, that it is a virtue that we absolutely need, but too much of it can be harmful. And that virtue is contentment. And I would suggest to us tonight that in many cases, virtue our contentment, rather, is a virtue that can kill and destroy the church. Being content is something that we need to do. We must be content in certain areas. But too much of it and in the wrong areas can be fatal to us. It's a desirable characteristic. If you look, again, if you look under the hood at the language the word translated contentment in our Bibles comes from a word that means happiness and satisfaction. And that 
that stands to reason. Philippians chapter 4 and verse 11 records where Paul said that he had learned in whatever state he was in therewith to be content. So if it was a state or a period in his life where he was not being persecuted, contentment. If it was an area or a period in his life where he was under persecution, he had learned to be content, to put his faith and trust in God. And so it's a desirable quality, one that Paul demonstrated for us in his own life, but there are areas in our lives where we, we can't afford to have that kind of happiness, if you will, satisfaction, maybe even more, or just outright contentment. I want to look at four areas tonight where contentment can be the virtue that kills the church. And here's the first one. Contentment with our own deficiencies. There are some areas where you and I are likely deficient, regardless of how long we've been a Christian. None of us have arrived. We're not there yet. And so certainly there are areas in our lives where we can make improvements and we need to make improvements. That means we have deficiencies. That means we have things that we need to work on. Things like knowledge. There there is so much that I want to know that is still within my grasp because I have a Bible and I'm able to read it and study it and to grow, but I need to do that. I don't know everything and you don't either. None of us do. We need to continue to grow. And so knowledge is an area where we can't afford to be content. The psalmist said in Psalm 119, verse 97, Oh, how love I thy law. It is my meditation all the day. Well, yes, for the psalmist, but is it for us? Is it our meditation all the day? Because it should be. And if it's not, if we're being honest with ourselves, then we have become content with our level of knowledge. Now, that probably doesn't sound like, you know, something, a pill that we want to swallow, but if we're not regularly engaged in the study of God's Word, then to some degree we become content with our level of knowledge. If we're not engaging in opportunities where we uh, have, uh, that we have to sit in Bible classes, to sit in worship, listen to sermons, use resources that are available to us that can help us grow in our knowledge, then we've, we have become content to some degree. In 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 15, we're told to study or to give diligence to show ourselves approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, handling aright the word of truth. <clears throat> And so we need to grow. We need to have knowledge. We can't be content with our level of knowledge. I I don't know how many congregations. I, I know probably tonight each of us could name a congregation that we were aware of that error came into, and maybe it was even in the leadership in the congregation, maybe even in the preachers, the error was. But the members of the congregation were not at a place in their knowledge where they could withstand that error. And the error just overtook that church. By God's design, that shouldn't happen because he's motivated us through his word to study his word. 
And we're to have the attitude like the Bereans who searched the scriptures to make sure that the things that they were hearing and seeing were so. So you can't be content with your own deficiency when it comes to knowledge. But what about our having been converted and the expectation that God has on us to have movement on a constant basis toward perfection? You say, well, perfection, that's, that's impossible. Yes, it is impossible that you and I will ever be perfect, but still the Bible says we're to move toward perfection, to strive for perfection. And I think about Hebrews chapters 5 and 6 that talk about the idea of being babes when we should be mature and needing to be fed milk when we should be eating meat. There, there is a sense of contentment that puts us in that place where God can look at us with a certain criticism and say, I expect you to be here, but you're here. You know, maybe in a job, you take on a new job and it's a skill set that you're not familiar with. And maybe the employer gives you a certain period of time to get up to speed in that skill set. And if you don't, you know, if you say, well, I got the job, I'm content with that, I'm content with the paycheck, I'm content with the hours, I kind of like this, but you're also content with your level of knowledge and understanding. And it gets to a point where he says, you should know more than this by now. You should be able to do this job without constant supervision. That's just not going to rest well in that situation, and it, it's not going to spiritually with God. He's given us the resources to move toward perfection, and that's the expectation he has. Contentment, too much contentment with where we are at will keep us from doing that. This affects important areas in our lives that impact our relationships with others. Things like when we become Christians, there are some things that we're probably still struggling with. Things like pride, arrogance, things like a lack of love, the you know, biblical love, the self-sacrificing kind, not, not the affection that we have toward people when they do for us what we want them to do. It's it's the kind that we do for people. We love people and we treat them the way Jesus wants us to, regardless of how they act. You know, it's that sacrificial, that uh, not necessarily merited kind of love where we have the best interest of others in mind. We, we don't have that naturally when we become Christians but we're to move toward perfection. We're to work every day at getting better, at loving people, at being humble people, at being compassionate, not kicking people when they're down or not kicking people down, but being compassionate toward them, considering our own selves and how we would want to be treated in those situations. We can't be content with the state of our movement toward perfection. It would be easy to say, well, you know, I'll never be perfect, so why try? And if we're honest, that's probably our attitude sometimes. Why even bother? 
Nobody else is doing it. I don't see that kind of movement in other people's lives, and it's discouraging to me, and it just makes me want to sit down and pout spiritually. But that's not an option we have. We're to move toward perfection regardless of whether anyone else does it or not. Contentment will keep us from doing that. And just the general transformation from self to selfless is something that should be taking place. And contentment will keep us from doing that. It will keep us self-centered. And so if I look at my life tonight, and I challenge you to look at yours, and if you were gauging it with a meter of some kind, and on one side was self and the other side was selfless, where would the needle be? Am I more selfless or, well, self? Let's make sure we keep that on the left side, right? (laughs) Or selfless. Which is it? Where's the meter at tonight? And I'm tapping on that thing to make sure it's not broken. It's probably not broken. It's probably pretty accurate. I'm probably over here more concerned about me, myself, and I than over here where my own wishes and my own desires don't drive everything that I, that I do. We can't be content. Paul said a couple of things. Well, he said a lot of things, but he said a couple of things along this line that I think are very helpful. If we'll just dig beneath the surface of the verse and think about what he's saying. Galatians 2.20, I am crucified with Christ. Yet not, I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. There's a sense in which Jesus is driving our lives. We're not robots. We're responsible for our own actions. But, you know, there's instruction in the ears that has come from God's Word telling us which way to go, how to navigate life, and how to further develop and transform ourselves from self to selfless. He said something else in Philippians chapter 3, verses 12 through 14. He says, not that I've already attained or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold on that for which Christ has also laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended. I haven't arrived yet. Just like we started out, none of us have. But one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press, that word means to agonize. I agonize, I press toward the goal for the price of the upward calling of God in Christ Jesus. That's not contentment. Contentment doesn't agonize to make progress, but Christians who have the right mindset about growth, maturity, spiritual development, and not resting when it's not time to rest, 
have that kind of attitude about life. I'm going to work really hard and I'm going to agonize so that I don't become content with my own deficiencies. The problem that you had spiritually five years ago, do you still have it today? The attitudes and the behaviors that you struggled with five years or 10 years ago, do you still struggle with those things? Why? Where's the growth? Where's the maturity? Where's the development? Where's the progress? Because that's what we're admonished to do, to strive for perfection and not to be content with our own deficiencies. Number two, here's another area where we can't afford to be content to be content with the sinfulness of the world. What is the hope of lost people if the church becomes content with where the people in the world are at? You know, Jesus gave a commission to the apostles and sometimes, myself included, I think we think that that was just to the apostles to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. He that believeth not shall be condemned. That's the fate of their not having believed and obeyed the gospel that we are challenged and commissioned to teach them. But it would do us a world of good tonight to think about our own work as evangelistic people and our own work as a congregation and to ask questions like, when was the last true conversion that I witnessed that was a direct result of evangelistic effort of the church of which I'm a member or my individual efforts? Now, that's not entirely upon us. But we have a responsibility and a role in it, and we ought to ask ourselves and challenge ourselves. When was the last time that I either had a part in that or some effort on the part of my congregation brought about true conversion? I'm not talking about swelling, where people move from one congregation to another. Those things happen. Sometimes they're necessary. They're the right thing, but that's not church growth. Church growth is when people evangelize and convert people with the gospel. That's growth. And that's part of who we are. That's part of what we are supposed to do. We won't do that if we become content with the state of the world. You know, and if, if, if we watch just watch TV and we, we embrace what we see on television as the state of the world, we think... It's all Sodom and Gomorrah, and surely God's going to rain down fire and brimstone and destroy it all sooner or later anyway, so I don't want to be there when that happens. But there are people out there looking. Sometimes they come in here, and sometimes we let them go right back out, and we shouldn't. We need to latch on to them. We need to be evangelistic. It's true that the Bible says that most people will be lost, Matthew 7, 13, and 14. But that's most. That's not all. And the challenge for you and me is to not become content and to be willing to search for the gems 
in the rough, if you will, to find the ones that are out there that have an interest in the gospel and salvation. I think that's partly what Jude was getting at in Jude verses 22 and 23 on some have compassion, making a difference in others, save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garments spotted by the flesh. It's destructive not to make an effort to save them, destructive to their own souls, but maybe even to our own souls. We can't be content with the sinfulness of the world. You know, <clears throat> I often, when preaching, I'll point at those glass doors back there and I'll, I'll say, the people out there. You know, and there's some irony to that because it's kind of like, it's kind of like an aquarium, right? You just, there's glass, right? And you see what's out there through the glass. And I don't want to be a keeper of an aquarium, right? We're to be fishers of men. We're to bring people in from the outside and not just stand up here and refer to them and how bad they are. We need to save them. And so we can't be content with the sinfulness of the world or we won't save anybody. They're doing their thing, we're doing our thing, and I'm fine with that. We can't be fine with that. Here's number three. Content with, with sin in the body of Christ. A church cannot be content with sin in itself. And there are a number of reasons for that. We'll talk about some of that. The fact of the matter is Christians do sin. If they didn't, we wouldn't need to talk about this. We'd all just be perfect. We'd never do anything wrong. And there wouldn't be any need to talk about sin in the church. But the New Testament over and over gives us examples of people who were Christians who were in the church who sinned. And it would do us a world of good to notice those passages and see what the Bible says about them. People like Simon the sorcerer, a man who was a sinful man in the world, but who obeyed the gospel and came into the church because the Lord adds to the church daily those who are being saved. And so he was a Christian. He was in the church, but he was a sinful man in the church. I think about Ananias and Sapphira, church members, but they sinned. And they did wrong as members of the church. I think about Peter, an apostle, and yet one who had to be confronted about sinful behavior as a member of the church. Paul talks about two men, Hymenaeus and Alexander, men who had made shipwreck of their faith. They were members of the church, and yet they sinned. And the, the Bible demonstrates a movement toward correction and contrition, confrontation, all of those necessary things in each of these cases. In Acts chapter 8 and verse 22, Simon the sorcerer was told to repent and pray to God if the thought of his heart might be forgiven him. And you remember what Peter said to Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5 and verse 3? Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? You've not, you've lied to God. 
And those individuals had an opportunity after they made the decision to lie and to deceive about what they did, they had an opportunity to correct it and they didn't use it. Did you sell the land for so much? Hit, hit, we know. <laughs> but they didn't do anything to correct it and you know what happened to them. They were stricken dead. Galatians chapter 5 and verse 11. Paul said, when Peter was come to Antioch, I was stood him to the face because he was to be blamed. And he was, he was kind of unbalanced in his treatment, not kind of, he was unbalanced in his treatment of the Gentiles when certain Jewish influencers were around. He'd sit and he would eat and he would fellowship with them, but when the people that he was more concerned about evidently came around, he'd get up and disassociate. And so Paul said, I withstood him to the face. He was to be blamed. He was a Christian and an apostle, but he did something and it needed to be pointed out. He needed to be corrected and evidently he fixed it. Just over and over and over again, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 20, Paul said of Hymenaeus and Alexander, I've delivered them to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. So in the church, guess what? Sometimes we do things that are wrong, and guess what? Every time we're supposed to correct it. We're supposed to make those things right. If it's broke, I must fix it. We must fix it. There's rebuke, there's encouragement, there's discipline, and there's even withdrawal. And this ties especially clearly into our lesson this morning when we were looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and the situation at Corinth where the man was in a relationship with his father's wife. And Paul said they were puffed up and had not rather mourned about this situation in an effort to do something about it. And so he rebuked them and he told them, put away that man. Why? Because there's sin in the church and there's no place for persistence of sin in the church. It has to be removed. It's supposed to be removed by ourselves when we recognize it, but the church has a plan and a process to correct that when it gets stuck for whatever reason. The point I'm trying to make for us is we can become content to where we're okay with sin in the church. And we get to the place where we no longer do what we need to do to fix it when there is a problem. And that's toxic. It's toxic contentment. And that do-nothing attitude makes for a sick church. And you can go over to the book of Revelation, the first few chapters, and see it over and over again. You see a loveless church, a church that they lost their first love. You see a lukewarm church. That, that word's a lot like contentment. It's just kind of stuck in the middle. It's not going backwards, not moving forward, just stuck, content. 
And, you know, we've looked at ways that individuals can get like that, but churches can get that way too. Content with sin in its midst. And I'm just telling us tonight, that's not who we ever want to be because Jesus cannot use a content church. He just can't. Especially if it's a situation where we're okay with sin in ourselves and we don't ever do what we're supposed to do to fix it and to purge it out and to be a new lump. Remember, a little leaven leavens the whole lump, Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. So we can't be content with sin in the body of Christ. And here's the fourth and final one. Contentment with the spiritual strength of the congregation. There, there are some, what we look at sometimes is pretty lofty requirements for certain people in the church. Like, for instance, the qualifications of elders. We sometimes frame those as, as lofty goals that we, you know, strive for if we're ever going to serve as an elder in a church. But I would challenge you to go back and look at those qualities and qualifications and notice which ones are just Christian expectations. Now, you don't have to have kids to go to heaven. You do have to have kids in an environment where you can demonstrate your ability to lead. That's a qualification to be an elder. But outside of that, really, which of the qualifications are not just things you and I ought to be doing as we strive for perfection? So they're not just qualifications for elders. They're thing, they are things all of us as Christians should be working on to develop our spiritual strength. I think sometimes people view growth spiritually as, as optional and that, you know, it's, it's kind of like buying a car. Do you want the basic model? Do you want the mid-grade or do you want the souped-up? Luxury version. And, you know, maybe Christianity's like that. I just want to be a basic model Christian. But there's no such thing. And I, I realize I'm talking to a Sunday night crowd tonight. I do get that. But we can't be content with that, right? There are no basic model Christians. There are Christians who are so appreciative of the grace and mercy that they have received from God that they are by that compelled to grow and to mature spiritually. And that's who we need to be. 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 2 says that as newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word, we're to do that. Why? So we can grow thereby. But as a congregation. 2 Peter chapter 3 verse 18, grow in grace and knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Grow, grow, grow. You know, there was a period of time in the early church where Christians had access to miraculous abilities. And one of those was miraculous knowledge. 
I think personally as a preacher, that would be pretty neat. Because I have to study, and Caleb has to study. His, his brain's young and fresh. He's, he probably doesn't have to work at it as much as I do now. But miraculous knowledge. But I also read where Paul told Timothy to stir up the gift that was in him. You know, just having it, just having that miraculous gift and even knowledge evidently wasn't enough. He had to move forward with it, to stir it up. I'm afraid a lot of Christians in the first century probably lost gifts because they didn't use the gifts. You know, use it or lose it. And so for us, we don't have that, but I don't know that miraculous knowledge would necessarily fix the problem of contentment because still you'd have to stir it up and make use of it in order for it to be beneficial and profitable. And so growing is not optional. There are no basic model Christians and no basic model congregations. We have an obligation to grow spiritually, and to be strong in the Lord and in our knowledge of his will. Someone has said there's a blackout often in the pew, and that's due to power failure in the pulpit. I believe that. But a blackout in the pew can be due to a power failure in the pulpit, but I don't believe that's always the case and the only cause for a blackout. Often our contentment with our level of progress as a congregation is the reason we have a blackout in the things that we need to do. So I'm just challenging us tonight, hopefully, to recognize how vital contentment is, but also to realize that in the wrong ways and in the wrong quantities, it can be the virtue that kills the church. Contentment is absolutely essential to win the battle that we are fighting, that we are engaged in at this very moment. But it's a delicate balance. Paul said, godliness with contentment is great gain. 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 6. And in many places, and I hope and pray, and I hope you and pray, you hope and pray and will do what is necessary in accompaniment to that hope and that prayer, I hope and pray that that is never an issue for us here, that we have a revelation situation where the Lord looks down on us and says, dead church because of contentment, lukewarm church because of contentment, loveless church because they were content with where they were and they didn't move forward and progress the way that they were supposed to. God help us to not let contentment be our downfall. Tonight, if you're here and you're not a Christian, don't be content with your state in life. Just straight up, if you've never obeyed the gospel of Jesus Christ, you're lost. Don't be content with that. Obey the gospel tonight. Through faith, repentance, confession, and baptism, 
for the remission of your sins, become a child of God, a Christian, and a person challenged by him to grow and mature and develop yourself on your journey to heaven. Maybe you are a Christian. Maybe some of these things uh, are areas of concern for you. You have the power and the ability to do something about that even tonight, whether privately with yourself and God or if public in nature, certainly know that this is a congregation and these are brothers and sisters who are willing to help and encourage in any way possible. We're going to sing a song of encouragement. If you have a need, why don't you come as we stand and sing? Thank you for listening to this recorded audio of a sermon that was preached at the Roanoke Church of Christ. If you'd like to visit us, you can do so at 608 Dallas Drive, Roanoke, Texas, 76262, or you can visit our website at roanokechurchofchrist.org. We hope to see you soon, and may God bless you.